I'm Alex. And I'm Tara. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. And today we're talking about Robin Hood. If you've listened to our last episode on the Aristocats, you'll remember that after Walt Disney's death, his brother Roy took over the company along with Don Tatum and Card Walker. Under their leadership, Walt Disney Productions saw a five-year period of financial stability. However, this all came to crumble after Roy died in 1971, and we're left with a company that has a poor creative vision, lack of strong leadership, and some financial issues. A few big things happened at the tail end of Roy's life that I would still like to note. The biggest being the history and drama surrounding the opening of Walt Disney World in 1971. Roy basically postponed his retirement because he wanted to make sure Disney World opened successfully, partly out of his love for his brother and partly to make sure the park didn't put the company under. From day one, Roy's biggest goal was that the project would launch successfully without putting Walt Disney Productions into debt. We discussed some of the ways he handled the finances to do this, like convertible debentures. Additionally, back when Walt was alive, the company kept his involvement in the purchase hidden, so they were able to get a 28,000-acre plot of land for $200 an acre, a price that would have gone up if the seller knew Walt wanted land. Um, I'd also like to point out that this piece of land is larger than the island of Manhattan. It was largely undeveloped, but near the intersection of two major highways, just south of Orlando. Walt, Roy, and then-Governor Hayden Burns publicly announced that the Disneys bought the land in November 1965 for a vacation resort project, and it's then that they say the estimated cost is about $100 million. One interesting thing I'd like to note is that by selling those convertible debentures, the Disney family only held 7% of the company, whereas before it held 51%. This is one of the many factors that will lead to the corporate takeover that we see with Michael Eisner in the 1980s. Another thing Roy did was make an agreement with U.S. Steel to build two hotels on the land. U.S. Steel would own the hotels, but the deal would give Roy some of the money he needed to make the park. They ended up making two of the three resorts that are now connected to the Magic Kingdom Park via the monorail system, the Contemporary Resort and the Polynesian Resort. In the end, this ended up becoming a bit more of a headache than Roy wanted. U.S. Steel constructed each room and fitted them on site, so the resort was put together piece by piece, which then made the production period a lot longer. There were also some issues the workers' union had, which put construction even more behind schedule, so the resort technically was not complete before opening day. I'd also like to note that Roy made a ton of trips down to Florida after Walt's death to oversee the construction project. I didn't have an exact number, but the PBS documentary I watched seemed to indicate that he made an exhausting amount of trips. So many that by the time the park opened, he vowed to never visit Florida again. Which no one, <laughs> no one takes an excessive amount of trips to Florida without without having some ulter- ulterior motive. With all of this, by the time 1971 rolled around, the likelihood of Walt Disney World tanking the entire company was minimal. Financial analysts were looking at how Roy was handling things at the time and said the company should be in good financial standing once the park opened. This only helped bring the Disney stock up higher to the point where Roy could retire two convertible debentures and buy out U.S. Steel for $100 million. So things are looking good, right? 
Walt Disney World opened on October 1st, 1971. Remembering how Disneyland's opening was a chaotic mess, Roy tried to give the park a soft launch. The press was not invited inside until October 23rd, and then to really kick it off to the mass public, Walt Disney Productions put on a 90-minute television special called The Grand Opening of Walt Disney World on October 29th, live in color on NBC. However, despite Roy's best efforts, Walt Disney World ran into the same issue Disneyland did. The company tried to cram too much work in a too short period of time and refused to push back the opening date, causing some attractions and elements to not be ready in time. Obviously, the Contemporary Resort was not complete in time, the lake for 20,000 leagues under the sea was empty, and several other attractions were not complete. The trams broke down, but luckily the monorail worked. But the biggest blow was the crowd size. One thing Roy did, again, to have a softer opening was encourage media outlets to overestimate opening day crowds to dissuade people from coming in at all. All in all, 10,000 people showed up when the real projection was about 12,000. The news said the opening was a bust, so the company stock dropped seven points, and Roy was mad. However, attendance numbers quickly grew. The park received 400,000 guests in the first month of operation, which was ahead of their projections. Then after Thanksgiving, 50,000 people tried to attend the park in one day. So all in all, Roy began to feel better about the park's future. Company profits soared from $12.4 million in 1966 to $26.7 million in 1971. But scholars note that the success of the parks, along with the success of the Disney Troika, is thanks to the ideas Walt had started before he died. Walt Disney World ended up costing around $400 million when it was estimated to first cost $100 million. Roy saw there were a lot of extra expenditures on the park and he blamed Card Walker for it. He got so upset that he talked a lot about replacing Card, he even approached WED Chief Mel Melton about taking his place. But Don Tatum overheard this and basically put it out there that if Melton tried to take the job, he would tell the board that Roy was not in his right mind so they would not approve of the switch. This won't be the last time Card and Don make a power move over Roy. It's coming up. With Walt Disney World open, Roy finally gets to do the one thing that he's been waiting to do for years now. Retire! It takes him a while to decide whether Don or Card will take over as CEO. While, according to Roy, Don gets along better with people, he chooses Card for the job. Card is more of a steamroller, doesn't really care about people's feelings when he makes decisions. Before he left, Roy gave Don a list of employees and told him to keep them on staff no matter what. Roy enjoyed a solid two months of retirement and then died of a stroke on December 20th, 1971. His wife said that she thinks the stress of the park and dealing with the drama over at Cal Arts negatively affected his health. And then we enter the years of languish in Disney history. After Roy's death, Cardwalker assumed control of Walt Disney Productions as its new president. Don Tatum became the chairman of the board. Ron Miller, who's Walt's son-in-law, became executive producer of the television show Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color and head of production. Roy Edward Disney produces television shows. Immediately, things begin to shake up. 
Ron and Roy notably do not get along, and both were on the board of directors. Basically, Roy didn't like that Ron couldn't raise the standards of film output, so Roy gave all of his park responsibilities to someone else, so Ron just focused on the film department. But even he lost touch over time. Don ended up firing everyone on Roy's list. They officially dropped Walt's Mineral King Valley project, and under this leadership, Walt Disney Productions officially decided to invest more in the parks than the movies, as the parks brought in more money. In fact, by the mid-1970s, Walt Disney Productions became reliant on park revenue to stay afloat. As I've indicated in previous episodes, this is a trend that we've been seeing since Disneyland opened in the 1950s, and attributes to the slow pull away from focusing on movies. For perspective, only 45% of the company's revenue was coming from film rentals before Walt died. Because of his focus on the parks, Walt Disney Productions was slow to develop new distribution technologies like cable and home video, which caused it to lose its powerful presence in Hollywood and the entertainment industry. Now, I do want to point out one thing. Card and Don don't just drop movies in Mineral King Valley to spite Walt, or even Roy. Months after Card became the president of Walt Disney Productions, the United States entered an energy crisis. Attendance at the parks dropped as gas prices soared. This forced Card to make careful, cautious decisions as he wanted to keep the company afloat. Before the energy crisis, there were some plans to create Walt's Epcot project near the Florida park, but he didn't want to put the company at risk, so he abandoned Walt's idea of building the city in the swamps of Florida. This ultimately informs the Epcot that the parkgoers know of today. But with prices inflated due to the energy crisis and the lack of attention to the company's film output, Disney begins to lose the acclaim and the place in popular culture that it had spent so long establishing. In his book, Demystifying Disney, Chris Pallant notes that, quote, the executive committee that took shape in 1972 triggered much of the malice that would surround the studio in the latter half of the decade. And we're going to see these financial struggles and failures in creative pursuits for a while. And therefore, we enter what Disney historians call the Dark Age of Disney, which I think is a great segue into some production history behind the movie that we're going to talk about today, Robin Hood. So to understand the reason why Disney decided to make Robin Hood an animated film, and an animated film with anthropomorphized animals at that, we have to go back, way, way, way back, to 1937, when Walt got inspiration to do a film adaptation of a play that's quite different from the Robin Hood movie that we know of. Walt Disney learned about the story of Renard the Fox, a 12th century legend, during production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and repeatedly tried to get the character of Renard into the film. Sam Moody, who we talked to in our episode on The Sword and the Stone, has read the original text of Renard the Fox. So we asked him about it. It's this raunchy, like, um, X-rated poem um, that's about this fox and these animals that kind of live together. And Renard is this very crafty, uh, diabolical fox that just plays every single animal to his own desires. Um, and it, it, was, it became popular because it made fun of like the rich and the bourgeois as well as like the lower middle class. It just made fun of everyone. Um, but that's how it came up. It was super popular. Um, there are a few like renditions of Renard the Fox itself um, that came up, I think, in the 30s and 40s. There was this really beautiful um, stop motion animation with like puppets that was made. And... Disney actually saw this, I'm pretty sure, as well as some of these like Dutch cartoons around 
Renata the Fox, which were actually paid for by Nazis, but that's another story. Um, but basically with Robin Hood, it comes out, um, it's about this crafty fox and the king, who's a lion, um, which pulls from Renard the Fox. There's also some other characters like the hen and the rooster and the badger that all kind of get recycled from Renard with family-friendly values instilled into them. While Walt liked the story, he worried how it would come across to children. Was Renard too sophisticated for children? Is Renard a suitable character for children? Foxes generally have not been the most heroic characters in Disney films. Um, at this point, we have Honest John and Pinocchio and Br'er Fox in Song of the South, both antagonists, villains if you will. After tossing the idea around in the 30s, Walt seriously considers adding Renard to his 1950s live-action film Treasure Island. The intent was to create three animated sequences a la Song of the South. Each would be narrated by Long John Silver, who would tell Jim Hawkins a moral tale that would then be acted out by Renard and the other characters from the tale. However, that idea was ultimately scrapped. Some sources indicate it was due to the backlash Song of the South received. Others indicate it was due to the overall tone of Renard, both the character in the adaptation and in the source material, but I could not find a clear answer. Disney's next attempt to get Renard into a film was in the pre-production of Chanticleer, the animated feature many of the nine old men were working on in competition with Sword in the Stone. In the pitch, Renard was going to be the villain. But if you listen to that episode, you know that the concept ended up getting cut. Disney did release a 32-page book in 1991 titled Chanticleer and the Fox, which had concept sketches by Mark Davis in a shortened version of the story. The project stayed on the shelf for years until Ken Anderson resurrected it while the Aristocats was in production. Studio executives were pushing to do another classic after the Aristocats. Ken would go on later to say that he suggested the story of, quote, the roguish outlaw Robin Hood, and they liked it. But he ran into the same issues that Walt did with Renard the Fox. For starters, the original tale of Robin Hood had some elements that the company felt were not suitable for children. Additionally, Robin Hood as a character represents anti-authority, anti-establishment, and theft. Given Disney films up to this point like to moralize their main characters, Robin became a difficult figure to make kid-friendly by the Disney definition. So oddly enough, Ken decides to blend his Robin Hood ideas with work already done on Renard the Fox. Namely, he decides to make the cast a bunch of anthropomorphic animals, which means the animals move, walk, and talk like humans, but they have fur and ears and tails like animals. In Ken's mind, turning the characters into animals solved the morality and morality issue and immediately made it more suitable for kids. Animal characters, in his mind, created an element of make-believe to undercut the moral dilemmas and to establish a degree of moral distance. Ken pitched the idea in 1970, placing the story in the Deep South. He noted that there have been many adaptations of the story, so to make it different, he decided that the movie will be townspeople telling the story of Robin Hood, a friend that they know well. Anderson based his character designs off the modern American version of Renard's story by Harry J. Owen. We'll include the link to that in our show notes. The setting was the first thing that everyone had an issue with, mainly because of Song of the South. They were aware of its reputation and trying to distance the studio as far away from it as possible. So the setting was changed to medieval England. Studio executives were also not entirely sold on having a cast of animal characters, but ultimately Ken's drawings sold the studio on greenlighting the picture. However, they weren't digging the beat for beat plot. They liked the entertaining sequences artists storyboarded. 
Now, the 1973 animated film was not Disney's first jab at a Robin Hood adaptation. In 1952, Disney released The Story of Robin Hood, a live-action adventure. Originally, it was going to be about a young boy who joins Robin's band, but child labor laws prevented them from hiring a young actor. Darn. Disney changed the original plot to make it a romantic adventure, and even released a novelized version of the screenplay as a marketing ploy. There are a few elements from this movie that will cross over into the 1973 animated version. The first is the classic Disney storybook opening. Additionally, Alan Adale plays the role of a roaming minstrel who sings songs about Robin and his adventures. However, as the 1938 Warner Brothers film starring Errol Flynn was considered THE adaptation of Robin Hood, even in the 1950s, Disney's movie. I would say it still is. It's very good. It's, I've never seen it, but everyone's like, everything I read just like raved about it. And, you know, because of that, Disney's movie just didn't do well. So shifting our focus back to the animated adaptation, the production process was chaotic. Everyone asked to come on the project was excited to work on it, but without firm leadership, something Walt Disney Productions lacked after Walt's death, things got difficult. Ken Anderson stayed on the project, and Wolfgang Reitherman came on as the director, but they argued and clashed a lot. Anderson wanted to feature all the different merry men in the movie, while Reitherman wanted a buddy picture. If you've seen the movie, you can probably figure out who won. Other merry men made cameos. Friar Tuck makes an appearance, but he's classified as townsfolk, not an official member of Robin's outlaw gang. And the rooster who sings the songs is supposed to be Alan Adale. Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas note that they wanted to make the Sheriff of Nottingham a goat just to experiment with different animals for villains, but Reitherman overruled that decision and said that it had to be a wolf. But even though Reitherman seemed so set on these decisions, other Walt Disney veteran animators said that most of the chaos of the production came from his indecision. In earlier episodes, I mentioned that the workers who ended up taking on leadership positions after Walt's death were constantly asking what would Walt do when making a film, and how that then created a difficult working environment and ultimately lackluster films. Well, Robin Hood was like that, but to an extreme, uh, mostly because this was the first animated film produced entirely without Walt, so the motto for this production period became, when in doubt, play it safe. One example of where this came to bite them in the butt was when it came to casting. They hired Tommy Steele to play Robin because Walt liked his work in The Happiest Millionaire. They also hired Peter Ustinov because of Walt's previous approval. However, producers did not think Steele sounded very heroic in the booth. So, he was ultimately dropped from the project and Reitherman ended up hiring Brian Bedford, a stage actor, who sold the whole heroic Englishman voice. However, the whole situation caused production to fall immensely behind schedule, which caused animators to have to do something that, well, did not end up being subtle, especially to a 20th century audience with YouTube. Robin Hood is known nowadays for the way it blatantly recycles animation from previous films. Specifically, there are whole sequences from The Aristocats, Jungle Book, Alice in Wonderland, even as far back as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The most prominent example of this is in the phony King of England scene. You can see the forest musician characters look like characters from earlier movies. Maid Marian dancing with her forest friends looks like Snow White dancing with the dwarves. Little John and Lady Cluck dancing looks like King Louis and Baloo. And even Marian and Robin Hood dancing is the same as when Duchess and O'Malley dance. Additionally, the robe and crown that Prince John wears is the same set you'll see the lion wearing in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll include a link to a video in our show notes. There was an overweight pigeon in earlier drafts of the script that had to be shot by a crossbow to deliver a message. Uh, <laughs> 
Excuse me? <laughs> right? Um, the character of Alan Adale in the movie plays reference to a few things. Uh, one, he is a rooster, which is a nod to the abandoned Chanticleer project, which, as we have established, also has some history in this movie. You may also notice that the characters here all have different accents. Some are Southern, some are English, and that's because the project was originally envisioned to take place in the Deep South. Excuse me? <laughs> and as I mentioned, <laughs> that didn't end up happening. That's a... What? Wait, did you... Wait, no, I totally... Yeah, so they... It was going to be in the Deep South, but then they're what? like, well, Song of the South was the Deep South, so let's put it in England to be safe. Again, but, when in doubt, play it safe. Okay, but Robin Hood is such a profoundly <laughs> British story? Yeah, it makes that, no sense. What? I mean, it's just Disney trying to Americanize something again, like... But yeah, I, again, that Kenny is Anderson... A baff- that is a baffling thought. <laughs> It's also been described as a greatest hits album for the original myth, as it draws on a lot of elements from earlier Robin Hood tales and movies. This includes the vultures shooting at Robin Hood as he slides on a rope, Robin climbing on the gate of the castle, the archery tournament, Robin fighting with a chair in the castle, the castle rescue, marrying May Marian, and the death of Robin Hood in front of Little John, which the movie ends up subverting. Finally, I, I wouldn't call it a subversion. I would call it being too cowardly to stick the landing. <laughs> I guess we'll get to that when we talk about it. I'm sure it'll come up. Finally, Louis Prima, who voiced King Louis in The Jungle Book, was considered to play Annadale and Little John and was ultimately not given either part. So he made an album called Let's Hear It for Robin Hood in 1974 and ended up selling it to Disney. And then they then used it for a lot of promotional material. It's all on YouTube. And it is interesting. Robin Hood hit theaters on November 8th, 1973, and while it wasn't acclaimed as one of Disney's best films, and is actually considered one of Disney's weakest films, the general population and some critics did enjoy it for the cast and the humor. Judith Christ with New York Magazine said, quote, nicely tongue-in-cheek without insult to the intelligence of either child or adult, end quote. She also stated that it, quote, has class in the fine cast that gives both voice and personality to the characters, in the bright and brisk dialogue in its overall concept, end quote. Vincent Camby with the New York Times said, quote, should be a good deal of fun for toddlers whose minds have not yet shriveled into orthodoxy, end quote. And he also called the visual style, quote, charmingly conventional, end quote. Dan Billington said it was a comeback for the company after Walt died and thought the voice cast just nailed it. Ian Nathan with Empire also liked the voices, but said, quote, while this is hardly the most dazzling of animated features, it has that cut corner feel that seems to hold sway in the 70s. Jay Cox with Time said it's only mildly diverting, not really funny or eerie like he knows the studio can do, but that it's good natured. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Times said the animation looks like a Saturday morning cartoon and that the dialogue is dumb. The song Love was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song and was played again in the 2009 Wes Anderson film Fantastic Mr. Fox. The movie ended up grossing $9.6 million during its initial release in the US and Canada, which all things considered is pretty good. And there's one more thing I want to mention about Robin Hood's reception and legacy in the United States culture. I was reading a blog post on mouseplanet.com, which said the movie, and I quote, was one of the major inspirations for the official birth of furry fandom around the 1980s, end quote. As all the characters have animal heads, but with a human body with fur, much like the modern day furries do. 
So obviously, I just had to learn more about this. So in researching the history of the furry fandom, I've come to realize that not a lot of work has been done to chronicle it, academic or otherwise. A sci-fi.com article led me to a fairly comprehensive timeline of the furry fandom that was printed for an exhibition at LACon 3, the 54th annual World Science Fiction Convention, on August 29th, 1996. It seems to be the history source for this subject. Essentially, what I found out is that there's no exact birth of the furry fandom, but it's a bunch of different events culminating over time. In late 1983 or early 1984, furry fans coalesced out of science fiction fandom and comics fandom and began as an independent identity. The common consensus is that specific TV series and movies started this movement. Claire McBride takes it as far back as animal cartoons of the 1930s, like Felix the Cat, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, and even Mickey Mouse. She says that in the 1960s, there's a switch where cartoon animals weren't just funny. We see animal characters presented in a more multifaceted human way in several shows like Kimba the White Lion, which began U.S. syndicated television broadcasting in 1966 and then continued through the late 70s. Fritz the Cat is the third main influence in this timeline. Disney's Robin Hood falls into this category, proving that animal characters don't just have to be funny. They can also be brave, kind, romantic even. Brian Bedford's performance invites this. Even non-furries have confessed that they either feel the Robin Hood obsession or at least understand why people find him attractive. One article I read brings up the rather true fact that Robin Hood was, at this point in Disney history, far more compelling and romantic a hero than any other Disney prince of the day. There's there. I mean, there's a contingent of people that would still maintain this argument. I mean, yes, I would. I would. I would say so. Additionally, the film does not dwell on the fact that the characters are animals. In fact, it's the first animal-led cast where humans, as we understand them, are not present. The animals are presented as lifelike and emotionally real as possible, which to me is some really odd but interesting expansion on the whole Disney formalism standard that we've been mentioning throughout our episodes. Disney creators here get to the point where they make animals so emotionally real, people feel a great affinity toward them. Robin Hood is also a notable movie in the furry timeline because it was the first mainstream film to include these multifaceted animal characters. And to solidify Robin Hood in the furry timeline even more, the art style of the movie heavily influenced Don Bluth when creating the character Justin for The Secret of Nim, which is another popular movie in the furry fandom because of its incorporation of anthropomorphic characters. But furries aside, Robin Hood's success, along with the success of the Aristocats, sets the wheels in motion for the company to continue their efforts in feature animation. The company will still follow the rule of only making one movie at a time, but the movies save the department from being gone for good, something that seems to happen once every couple of years at this point. However, this relative success does not mean Walt Disney Productions puts more money into the animation department, as we will see in our next episode. Tara and I got two different kinds of responses when interviewing guests about their Disney movie preferences. We had those who spoke of Robin Hood fondly. Uh, I think my, my, my favorite overall Disney um, animated film is, is Robin Hood. Oh, I definitely watched this as a kid. I enjoyed this a lot. Uh, when I think of like, hey, they Disney, uh, it just, Robin Hood is the one that stands out in my mind. We went to Blockbuster every Friday and she would take me and she'd be like, go rent whatever you want. And I would go get Robin Hood every single time. And we had people who explicitly mentioned not watching it. There's a really good chunk that I haven't seen, that, and I tell people that, and their reaction is always, what? Can you list some of those? 
Robin Hood is, I think, is one. Uh, growing up, I had every single Disney film on VHS, and then we switched to DVDs when that was a thing, and now I have Disney+. Plus. So I've, I've literally seen almost, I, I think the only one I don't know super well is uh, the Robin Hood film, like with all the like talking animals, but I don't even know if that was like, I don't know if that one was direct to VHS or not. That's the one I'm like, eh, about. That's one I actually don't think I have watched. Okay, have, did you know that that was one that the Disney company had out? Yeah, I knew it existed, but if I've ever seen it, I don't remember it. And I haven't definitely haven't watched it as I've gotten older. I don't really know why I haven't watched it, honestly. I no, just never have. Something I thought was interesting, our women and non-binary guests had the more apathetic responses, while those who identified as men were quick to praise the film. Tara and I had this initial reaction. Uh, this movie, huh? I was kind of underwhelmed. Yeah, um, I will say it moves. It does like move. It, it's just it, it in and out like it's 90 minutes, but like you don't really feel it. Um, yeah, I think this is another this is one of our first real big instances, in my opinion, of, oh, man, nostalgia got you fuckers good, huh? Yeah, because I watched this movie. This was a, another one of those movies that my babysitter would bring. Um, and so it was on like a, a rotation for the better part of my childhood just at least once a month watching this because it was entertaining and going back to it there were some things that i was like oh yeah the slaps like the opening song uh like robin hood and little john running Mm -hmm. through the floor i was like yeah let's go um but then some of it i was like you know this just doesn't hit the same as it did no and that's okay yeah and that's fine it's fine. It's a good. It's okay to like a movie, but uh, y'all. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, like so many people we talked to were like, loved Robin Hood, so good, and so I think that kind of got my expectations up, and yeah. I was expecting too much from a 1970s uh, animated film. From yeah, Disney. yeah. After reviewing our interviews, it struck me how fondly our guests spoke of Robin Hood, both when recounting memories of watching the film as a child and recently as an adult. And the one thing that kept coming up is that Robin Hood is a fun movie. Hi, my name's Justin. I am from California, and I love movies and coffee. This is Justin P., not to be confused with Dr. Justin Rollins from our previous episodes. Justin P. says that while Robin Hood is not a perfect film, it is a fun movie. I think it's a fun movie. I don't think it's perfect. Um, I do enjoy... Like, I enjoy the music in the movie a lot, um, and I I think that there's been so many versions of Robin Hood done, but this one is not a terrible one. I enjoy the anim- the animation style of this one, um, just like the the way that it also is accompanied by um, ballads. I think is fun, um, just like. It starts with like Oodle Day and like all of that. Um, I just think it's 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 got some really fun elements to it. Dr. Justin Rollins also explicitly mentioned Robin Hood being his favorite Disney movie, and like Justin P, brought up the music. Uh, I think my 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 favorite overall Disney um, animated film is is Robin Hood. Oh, just because I like the music. The animation is 
again different than other films, or at least as I as I remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the fact that they're just like, yeah, let's make animals like <laughs> all, all the all the characters, um, and then they confused an entire generation of children. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I I really enjoy. It. I watched I watched Robin Hood so much as a kid. Um, cause also just, I just really love the music. Mm-hmm. There's also part of that, like, I'm guessing it was the sixties, seventies, seventies, seventies. It had like that singer songwriter, like music yeah. vibe to it. Right. So it's like, you know, I don't know, Cat Stevens or Pat Croce or something. And it's just like, you know, that really, that really appeals to like, you know, yeah, that makes five sense or six for you. year olds in the 1980s. Yeah. That makes sense for you. Sam Van Haren wondered if his love for Robin Hood was influenced by nostalgia, but after watching the film recently, he says it remains one of his favorite Disney movies. Uh, when I think of like Heyday Disney, uh, it just, Robin Hood is the one that stands out in my mind. And I wonder if it's just, you know, it's like all Disney conversations. I wonder how much is uh, the nostalgia factor, but I do, I revisited it very recently and I still treasure it. But, uh, and it's interesting because I know about the history of, the fact that they reused uh, backgrounds and animations from the Jungle Book, and then you know grafted uh, the new uh, characters onto it, which is interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think I just adore the voice cast, the music, the humor, and it's still great looking. Uh, and I just I find it very funny and very. Uh, you know, just likable and warm. We also had two guests who started recounting funny scenes and moments in the movie that made them laugh. Here's Daniel, who we last talked to in our episode on The Jungle Book. I remember I was definitely, like, I was just entranced by the, um, by the com- the competition that you talked about with him. Like, he's disguised as a giant stork, which is the best disguise he has in the entire movie because every other disguise he has... I have no idea how anybody didn't see through it immediately. But the stork, he actually doesn't look like himself. But anyway, like, just the... There's just music everywhere and people and it's just fun with them, you know, shooting the bows and arrows. And then he gets into the, the shoot-off with the sheriff of Nottingham who cheats and then cheats again to try and get Robin to miss it. And he shoots an arrow at his arrow and somehow manages to get it to go straight through. Also, I don't know why that ends the competition because that would essentially be a tie, I think. So, Mm. like, Robin Hood wins and we all cheer and everybody cheers. I don't know why we're cheering because they should just have to shoot again. But, you know, story. But I remember, and then, like, during the whole thing, you've got Little John, who's impersonating a foreign dignitary, once again, not changing his voice at all. And then you've got Hiss flying around in the balloon, and he gets stuffed in the barrel, you know, by Friar Tuck, and it's like, there's just so much going on. And then, you know, you've got Maid Marian and the chicken lady, whose name I can't remember, even though she's part of one of my, she's the reason for one of my favorite lines where she runs off with the golden arrow and little John is like, seize the fat one. 
And it's just like, oh God. And then she, you know, it devolves into a football movie where she's just blocking tackles <laughs> left and right. right. I love that whole, like, <laughs> the entire sequence is just so much going on and so much fun that, yeah, it just, it sticks in my mind. Um, but yeah, just to add to like the whole fun aspect of it, because yes, Robin is like swindling the rich and everything, but he makes it a game. Like everything he does is a game. And so I think that's makes it so easy for viewers, especially kids to just watch these movie, the watch this movie and like get so enthralled by it all. Right. Yeah. Like he's, he's doing these incredibly dangerous things and he's just having so much fun doing it. That you mm-hmm. you want to do incredibly dangerous things, which is not advisable. But like he is just it's a it's a sense of sense of infectiousness. Just the the happiness that he has even when even little John is like, uh, we shouldn't be doing this. And that's also why it gets so serious so quickly when he goes to break Friar Tuck out of jail. Because he's not having fun anymore, and you can feel it, and you know this, this is serious business. Like Daniel, Sam Moody brought up a few specific scenes that he enjoyed, which then led to a larger conversation about comedy's role in the film. I thought it was also funny how they made fun of, like, like everyone seemed to know Prince John's, like, attachment and, like, infantile tendencies. Because in the song about him, they make fun of, like, him sucking his thumb. Um, and then there was one point too, where, uh, Sir Hiss is like in the basket he's like fed up with Prince John and he like puts his snake elbows up on the basket just to like lean on them. I was like, that's, that's great. (laughs) I love that. There was also a point too, where like Hiss and John are arguing or something like that. And John like goes to smack Hiss and Hiss dodges and he's like, Hiss, you dodged my hit come back i need to hit you it's like just just let him off the hook once he's doing his best (laughs) it's apparently not allowed see it's like funny like like i feel like those moments they're funny yes but then like you realize also like how much they code little like um the prince's prince john's violence as something humorous when in actuality, like, that's a very serious thing. Like, mm-hmm. abusing your your manservant or whatever his is. Like, that's... Like, yeah, I, I guess it's just a thing of this movie, though. It's like, there's so many darker bits to it. But because it's such, like, a fun movie, you almost, like, forget. Like, oh, wait, no, this is actually very bad, if you think I mean, about it. I mean, that's the way most slapstick is kind of coded in animation right Mm. like all the as long as like as long as they're squashing and stretching appropriately it conveys a lack of physical harm so Mm. everything is just funny because impact is funny that's a good point that is a good point right yeah i think he ties the snake up like at least two or three times and it's a very good joke every time he does it Mm mm-hmm despite the fact that you, in reality, cannot tie snakes in knots. It will kill them. <laughs> this, feels like it, this feels like it was made for TV in a certain way. 
and like they knew like they they had the thought of we're just going to air this on tv a bunch uh which is weird because like tv in the 70s isn't in the same place where it's going to be in the 80s where i think this mentality would probably show up more like this like those commercial breaks feel more like an eisner thing which <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about later um so it, it, it was kind of weird to see that pop up here so i didn't really know what to do with it except for the fact that like yeah the animation but how the animation is just trying to keep the lights on so they're just trying to get through some stuff and if i remember correctly i don't know if i've talked about this yet or if this is coming up in a couple episodes but the 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 television the disney television show that was airing i think on nbc at this time it when we hit the 70s, especially after Walt dies, it's not so much new programming that they're airing on this channel or on this for this television show. They are just kind of repurposing movies, you know, that because, you know, streaming wasn't a thing. Home, they didn't really have home videos at this time. So it was just the easiest way to, like, fill the time that they were given, but also reuse some of the content that they already made um, because they weren't even really making movies with the with the um with the television show directly in mind like they were doing i'd say like right when in the 60s you know what we were talking about earlier so i could totally see it being like a a happy coincidence almost because i i mean they may have thought about it when making it but i'd say they would be like oh this would work yeah <laughs> we'll just throw yeah. it on there yeah i guess I don't know. And, like, the fade to blacks tend to come at, the, like, the, the act breaks, basically. Like, the little... Like, this movie is almost little vignettes. There's not really a overall, like, as, like, it, a, 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 a consistent plot as is, mm -hmm. you know? Um, like, yeah, there's a story, but, like, it's very loose. This movie's very vibes-based. <laughs> um, and the vibes are... The vibes are mostly fine. Uh -huh. Mostly. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's fine. I it's fine. It was a nice hour and a half. Yeah. Um, it's, um, they really took the whole, the, the people of Nottingham, like telling the story of Robin Hood thing mm -hmm. a little far because I just remember, I think it was the first scene that it was the, it was the, um, the scene where Skippy shoots the bow and arrow into the castle garden or whatever and yeah. I remember thinking to myself, like, we've had a lot of Skippy in this movie for a movie yeah. about Robin Hood. Yeah, he's in this a lot, isn't he's he? He's in it a lot. Like, they have, like, all these little side characters that they uh -huh. spend a lot of attention on. Yeah. And I personally would have rather listened to Brian Bedford s talking more personally. Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't hate the kids in this, honestly. I think they're f they're pretty good. So what makes them different from the other kids? Fuck if I know. The kids also stuck out to Sam Moody. I didn't realize how much of like an experience of childhood it has in it, like with the little bunnies and the turtle and just like their experiences. I feel like their interactions are so like innocent and like genuine to like the experience of a child and just like how you think as a child. There, there's a point in the castle walls where they're talking with Maid Miriam 
and like the little rabbit's pretending to be Robin Hood and she's like well aren't you gonna give me a kiss because like you just saved me and he's like a kiss what for and then she kisses him and all the other kids like see it and start laughing at him and he's embarrassed like I feel like that's so reminiscent of like the innocence of childhood and just how you conceive the world yeah and they're just a cute addition to the scenes as well it also just makes you wonder like because it's like yeah it's a kids movie but also like there's a lot of horrible stuff happening in the background that i think like as a when you're watching it yet when you're younger you don't really like realize so just imagine being a child and growing up in that sort of situation where like you're always worried that someone's gonna come and steal your money and then yeah, yeah, gonna... and Prince John imprisons them all. Yes. Like, all the children are just in jail, like, shackled up to the wall for not being able to pay the taxes that they shouldn't even have to be paying at this point. Now, back to our discussion. Tara went on to mention the kids in Robin Hood were more tolerable than the kids in the Aristocats. I'd say, like, the Aristocat kids are probably the age of the youngest bunny. Yeah, that, yeah, that probably has something to do with it. Yeah, there's, like, there's, like agency and imagination at work in these kids mm. um like just if i'm lying i die till i'm dead like that's all right that's pretty fun I've, i know kids that do that that's it's it's funny it's cute um whereas the aristocat kids are just like oh my god fucking end me please <laughs> fucking spoiled rich brats shut up well no i think you bring up an interesting point though because we talked a lot last episode about those little kittens and how they're basically like you said spoiled rich brats like we can totally see who they're going to be in the gentry when they're like young adults right and the picture is not necessarily pleasant um but then you have those juxtaposed to these kids who come from very poor backgrounds they don't Mm -hmm. have a lot like they saved up for like the one farthing and then they got that taken away from them you know okay okay do you know how much a farthing is in terms of like pound no i don't it is one it is one 960th of a pound wait what yes i did i did this i looked this up last night farthings are like out of circulation they're not a thing they stopped being used in like the the mid 1800s but farthings are like pennies they're quarters of pennies so that, like, think about how poor these people are that they're like, we had to scrimp and save for a farthing. To and, quote the sheriff, crime a nightly. What? Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, and that, like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. These people are poor. They are also, so poor. But also, like, remember, it is, like, it's fucking medieval England, so money isn't really a, th- <sighs> money's not really a thing thing that they need to worry about per se because of how the feudal system works Mm -hmm. um like you like their 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 current their the way they sustain themselves primarily is through work and Mm. like a lot of that work does get shuffled off to the lord but they like are entitled like under feudal society you are entitled to you know a little bit of food off of what you make rather than you get paid your mm. payment is your payment is you're allowed to live on the lord's land and like benefit from very albeit very slightly the goods that you produce for that lord commerce and the industrial revolution haven't necessarily 
taken hold yet because mm-hmm. uh, at the point where Robin Hood is set it if I recall correctly um, we're still in the feudal system or mm-hmm. like towards the very end of it so mm-hmm. capitalism hasn't fully taken over um, <laughs> so like taxes is kind of a nebulous concept yeah you do still have massive wealth disparity because that's like the backbone of feudalism so it still works but they're they're taking it and turning it into a more like quote unquote commerce based uh like currency driven narrative which is how it kind of carries which is how the the myth is car- the myth the story is carried forward in pop culture mm. so this is I'm very... not I'm I'm not a medievalist yeah so this is just kind of going off of like what I remember from undergrad grad school yeah so I'm probably wrong a lot in there. If any medievalists want to uh, fact check me on any of this, uh, dream a little deeper podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> now, whether Tara was right or not, the point still stands that the whole steal from the rich to give to the poor theme is a big part of Robin Hood and its cultural understanding, including this film. For some, the message hits a bit close to home. And then also watching, you know, somebody hoard money. And, you know, keep it from people. It's just like, oh, wow, this is um, a little too real. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little too close to home. It's a little too close Mm -hmm. to home, you know. Mm -hmm. For others, it was a refreshing source of cultural criticism. You know, I I enjoyed a lot of Disney animated films. I liked the ones that I felt were um, had more serious themes because I was a very serious kid. Um, So, um, you know, that's why... I liked I liked the, the Robin Hood message of like, you know, um, uh, um, shifting wealth <laughs> from from the incompetent um, uh, uh, <laughs> inhuman elite to um, you know to the prucky proletariat. Uh, even though I had no I had no sense of like class politics when I was you know five or six, but I I knew that like the rich guys were um, mean and bad and and took advantage of the the little guys. But the messaging and themes surrounding the use of taxes in the movie goes a bit deeper. Tara goes into it. So, yeah, because then that makes me wonder what how actually taxes worked in a feudal system. Mm-hmm. I think they're trying to, like... It, they're playing off of the American conception of taxes, of, like, we're going to take some of your money and give it to the government, mm-hmm. but also in the way that, like... Christianity deploys taxes and tax collectors Tithing, in that kind in, of stuff. Well, I was going to say in the Bible. Oh, 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 okay, okay. Because it's like in 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 the Bible the issue with tax collectors is like they are taking what is required by Rome, but then the only way they make money because they're not paid is to is to gouge the people they're taxing. And take extra to pay for their own existences while sending the actual required taxes back to Rome mm. with for Caesar, which is why that when 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 Jesus is saying give unto God what is God's and give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, he's saying stop stealing from people, just pay your fucking taxes. Got it. Yeah, yeah. and that's definitely the vibe of the movie. Uh huh. Which you know, given disney and america at this time Uh uh-huh checks out yeah um because robin hood the the movie doesn't exactly define 
taxes. It's not bad taxes versus good taxes. It's just taxes straight up. Uh, so they're almost like they are working to conflate Prince John and taxes entirely rather than like taxes being a part of the system that they exist within mm-hmm. because they don't ever talk about taxes in relation to Richard. They only talk about taxes in relation to John and how exorbitant they are. Mm-hmm. So it's pushing a very libertarian uh, American right wing notion that tax is bad straight up and down, um, which is not great. Taxes are required for a functioning society. <laughs> um, and like you're, you're, you you kind of I thought it was interesting that like the sheriff of Nottingham keeps saying like, I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing my job. But was he? No. I was like, he took way too much pleasure out of that. He's relishing the cruelty of it. Um, His ears would perk up and he'd smile a little too hard. Like, like, the joy he took from... uh, Otis? Yeah. Oh, Otto. Otto was his name. And uh, and taking the... Literally stealing from the poorest of the poor in Robin Hood's beggar disguise. Yeah. Uh, I don't, it it rubs me the wrong way entirely. Funnily enough, Daniel mentioned having a similar reaction to the same scene. For some reason, I feel really bad for the dog with the busted leg who's walking around on crutches the whole time. And I felt just really awful when the sheriff comes and like knock beats his leg, which I'm assuming is actually busted. It's not like they're faking or anything. He just beats it to get coins out of it. Like that throughout the entire movie, the sheriff of Nottingham is doing things that are reinforcing him as much, probably just as despicable as John, but slightly more competent. Mm. Cause King John is sniveling and cowardly, but and also not competent whatsoever except for the one thing he does which is figure out that the stork is robin hood but even he botches that up really nicely but like the sheriff is scary in that he's just a just a little bit more competent you believe he might actually be able to pull something off and but they reinforce his nastiness just through the whole thing he he does the he does the trick when Robin Hood is there in disguise, in the most thin disguise that he has in the entire movie, um, as the poor man, you know, walking around like alms, alms for the poor. And the sheriff throws a coin into his cup and three more bounce out, which I want to test the physics on so bad right now that <laughs> I really just want to go find a cup and put coins in it because I don't think that, I don't think you can do that. But like, he's just. He was probably the most despicable villain that I'd seen as a young child. And I had like a whole galaxy brain take uh, prepared before I had rewatched it. And then I and then like Richard comes back and the sheriff of Nottingham also gets thrown in jail and it went out the entire window. <laughs> so I was going to talk about I was going to use that as a springboard of like, oh, well, you know, like local 
local authorities are actually the real ones you got to watch out for. Like the local oppressors are going to do way more than anything the land, the landed elite can do. And then fucking Richard comes back and throws the sheriff of Nottingham in jail as well. I'm like, ah, well that the galaxy brain take went out the window. Well, so. and I think that's a very Disney ending to things uh-huh. and f- making the responsibility fall on the individual. Not so much. Right. You know, everything else that's kind of, yeah, that would lead to a system that exactly. would allow this to happen. Right. And they do very much lean into like the good monarch yes. notion of all of this because I think this is extremely interesting. When that when when we're introduced to uh Prince John and Hiss in the carriage, I'm going to talk a lot today. I'm sorry. Um when we're introduced to to Prince John and Hiss uh he said like Oh, where was it? Where was, was it? Was it the fact oh. that he hypnotized Richard to go on the crusades? Yes. Yeah, yes. I noted that too. Obs- like they absolve King Richard of any wrongdoing. Yeah. Just across the board because anyone he killed in the Middle East. Not his fault. Uh, not his fault. He was hypnotized. He wasn't acting under his own free will. It's all all the all the blood is on his and John's hands and uh-huh. I'm just like are you fucking kidding me? The Crusades are like the one of the worst fucking hate, like straight up hate crimes of human history. So for someone who doesn't know, what are the Crusades? Uh, so the Crusades were basically um, in medieval Europe, uh, Christianity, big force, very big, p- powerful force. Uh I'm going to simplify to a grand degree here because, again, I'm not a medievalist. The Pope wanted to consolidate power. (laughs) And the best way to do that would to be unify everyone against a common enemy. Now, uh, Muslims had moved back into the Holy Holy Lands. Uh, And as is wont to happen, uh, certain people had opinions about who should live in the Holy Land. So the Pope basically said, in the first couple of Crusades, none of, like, oh, there were a bunch of Crusades, yeah. right? None of them really went to plan. A bunch of, like, one of the Crusades got way off track and just went and ransacked Constantinople instead. Um, but this one was very, like, the one Richard went on was to take people to the Holy Land and drive muslims out of the holy land because in the eyes of the in the eyes of the the holy see the papacy they did not deserve to be there Mm. which is wild because muslims also have a claim to the holy land much like christianity does and judaism does right so it's which is part of why post-world war ii the establishment of the state of israel has become such a big problem uh but like disputes over the Holy Land and like bi- histor- biblical historical Israel has been a hot button issue for literally thousands of years, which is why you also can't just come up with an answer mm-hmm. to this problem because right. a bunch of people do have legitimate claims to that land being holy. And then Disney decides, you know, instead yeah. of actually addressing this because this is a big part of the story, he was hypnotized. He was hypnotized. Which I think is so fascinating because, like, as we talked about, there's a lot of anxiety around the messaging of this film and the production process. Like, you know, the, the, the they didn't, they, they questioned whether they should actually do Robin Hood because of how 
it t- does take a stance on so many what some people would call controversial things. And so to skirt around any question of, you know, were the Crusades actually something good? Was this something we should have done? They find no. like, a very odd way around it. And I also thought it was kind of funny because literally one of the first lines spoken in the film is when little John turns to Robin and is like, so are we the good guys or are we the bad guys? Like, and, the, and then they're, and then Hiss and John are like, we caused a crusade. It's like, Robin Hood's the good guy. It's fine. <laughs> Don't even question it. Don't even worry about it. I would say he's the good guy to begin with, <laughs> but that's where my, that's my own, that's my own opinions because he, well, Every, th- everything Robin Hood does is morally justified in this movie. It's it fine. Is. <laughs> it, it is. is. It's entirely morally justified. And I think it's because of the fact that they made, like, purposefully made little, uh, not little John, Prince, Prince John. Yes. Yes, Prince John, so irredeemable. Like, nothing about right. his character you're like you know he was was he really that bad no he sucks fuck him no, he's terrible and hiss is worse yeah that's the thing but the problem is and this is an issue i noticed with both um authoritative powers in this movie so we have prince john and then the sheriff of nottingham their biggest downfall is the fact that they've let the power get to their heads and they're so egotistical that they refuse to listen to anyone below them because they uh-huh. automatically assume they're better than them. So Prince John is always like, Hiss is always like, sir, I don't think you should let these women in because they could be bandits. And John's like, what are you talking about? Well, guess what? Prince John and his comical blunders came up in our discussion with Sam Moody, and it led to a larger argument about whether or not he was a good villain. Prince John also like had this weird dynamic of like being so power hungry and like murder ravenous, but as soon as like he's fronted with like actual violence, he like backs away. Like he can't get his paws dirty. Especially like with that archery tournament towards the end. He's like, Kill him, grab Robin Hood, kill him, and then as soon as someone approaches, he's like, No, please don't kill me. Don't hurt me. I'm just I'm just the messenger. I'm the king. Um, to the point of, like, the comedy being, like, I don't know, just a little, it it seemed almost like an extended Looney Tunes cartoon at some point, because, like, the, like we were talking about earlier, the comedy was so, like, egregious and slapstick. Do you think, like, the, this oscillation between murder-hungry and murder-fearful does that work when we present him as a villain? Like, does that work in the character and the plot's favor? Or do you think that's, like, a weaker point in the in the movie? Um, I think it works as, like, a realistic character, maybe. Because I think there are definitely, like, possibilities for these people in power to, like really desire like retaining this power at like whatever cost necessary but because especially because like he's a prince and he's like been raised in royalty all his life like he does not want to get his hands dirty so as soon as he like approaches the possibility of like getting hurt or even like dying he just instantly like 
pacifies himself and like mm-hmm. tries to save himself as much as he can. So I think it works on that front. Maybe not as like a evil villain, like memorable type that like Maleficent might be. But I mean, ultimately, I also don't think they're necessarily going for evil villain type stuff. They're mostly like because Robin Hood is mostly it. It's it's talking about the ineffectuality of monarchy. Uh, so I think you could view John as set up against Richard, who, like, I, I bring this up because you're talking about him being averse to violence. Richard's literally off fighting the Third Crusade, like, during this. So set yeah. up of, of, like, his cowardice, of John's cowardice versus Richard's um, non-cowardice, I guess. Uh, brash stupidity I <laughs> would be another word for <laughs> describing the Crusades. Yeah, well, and they even, like, they included a line that I didn't notice the first time I watched it, but apparently the Crusades were all, like, Prince John and Sir Hess's idea, because there's the line where Prince John is like, yeah, and remember when you um, hypnotized King Richard to go off in the Crusades? Wait, and I was what? Like, yes, <laughs> like, this has been their plan the whole time. Oh, okay, well, that makes it interesting. It was towards the beginning before, I don't know if you guys have Disney Plus up, but it's like right before Robin Hood comes and like does the fortune telling stuff. Okay. It's like in the carriage and he's like, oh, like what a great idea of you, Sir His, to hypnotize Richard into going off into the Crusades. And he's been in the Crusades for like 10 years, they say at the beginning. So this has been like very premeditated of Prince John to well, like then, yeah. usurp the throne. Well, then I feel like it does just like we've been saying, it's this undercurrent of these darker elements that they're pulling from history, right? But then again, like you have this as like a Looney Tunes-esque cartoon. So like, you know, it's just like there are things that I think like when you if you if you're just watching it as a kid, you're just like, oh, it's this is funny. But then like, you know, knowing things about history and everything, you sit and you think about it and you have these moments, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 very it, it I guess it harks back to like Prince John's like desire to just like gain this power from whatever means necessary, especially because they're like oh, we convinced him to go off in the crusades. I hope he dies like in the crusades so now I can remain king. Right. Which uh, I also I I do like the symbolism of the crown. But I wonder why, like, after these 10 years, why he hasn't just made a new crown for himself. Because he, like, well, obviously the symbolism hopes that he'll wouldn't stay work the anymore. Like, how else are we supposed... I guess, yeah, it's like, like you said, though, it's like that visual indicator to the audience that, like, mm-hmm. he's not suited for this, even though... Yeah. Which I'm guessing is because, like, you know, he... We see he has horrible intentions, you know, at least yeah. compared to Richard, you know. Um, and makes apparently like just terrible decisions in general yeah well and they they all still refer to him as like prince john not king john and even Mm -hmm. though he bans like everyone from saying king richard he never like makes the extra effort to like have people call him king john so i guess maybe on some level he recognizes that he's still unfit to be like the king yeah well and and also just like keeping in mind how obsessed with legacy and tradition most monarchies are especially the english monarchy uh the yeah uh the 
him not making a new crown it actually makes a whole lot of sense to me because like if it's not the crown it doesn't mean anything Mm -hmm. that's a good point yeah so it's literally him unable to fit into the shoes that the country has set for Mm -hmm. him and i think also because if i remember correctly like I feel like there's also just a lot of, like, insecure masculinity stuff working there, too. Like, you know, I just feel like he knows that he's not actually fit for this. Mm-hmm. And he's constantly just trying to front and present himself in the best way that he can that he is ready for this. Like, think about, like, the amount of jewels he had on his fingers with those rings. You know, like... um And, like, you know, you have all these moments where it's, like, he's trying to, like, hold himself all regally, right? And, like, trying to, like, have his head up. But then, like, when something goes wrong, he just throws a fit. And I remember, like, you know, he, like, I think there's this one scene where he literally, like, was throwing a tantrum. Like, you know, like, banging his fists and complaining. And then his voice got really whiny and everything. So, I'm sure, like, if we dig into the psychology of it all, you know, Mm -hmm. he's, like, he knows he's not actually fit for this. And especially mm-hmm. especially in a world like defined by uh primogeniture and like f- the the first son inherits everything mm. like not being the first son immediately comes with insecurities yeah yeah and i guess that's why he like is so hyper focused on catching robin hood because like this is his one chance to prove to himself and to everyone else that like he can accomplish things he can get things done and that's why he throws a fit when his bumbling sheriff and his right hand man snake can't do like follow simple instructions when really it's like his fault in the end that they can't capture them he's just taking it out on them Yeah, I guess the the only other point with the villains I was trying to make, the sheriff and yeah. um, Prince John, is it's a very, like, we see this, I feel like, all the time, where either the villain is incompetent and the sidekick is right, and yeah. because the, of the villain's in, like own personal failings, they don't listen to the sidekick, and that's why they're ineffective or it's the inverse like when we have maleficent who's literally the most powerful person probably that we've watched so far Uh and her one downfall was just the fact that she had incompetent henchmen who didn't realize that children like aged as they got older and it's like i guess what irks me about it is i want a good villain at this point i'm like i'm getting at this point in our chronology i'm getting tired of just watching like the same thing with these villains where they're so easily outfooled. Like, yeah. you're just like, and I get it, like, they can't win, but like, give them, like, give the protagonist something to work on. Give the protagonist at least a challenge to try and make, to make me more engaged in the movie. And I think ultimately, like, that's one of the reasons why I was just kind of like meh about it. It's because I knew. Like, everything from the start about this shows that Robin Hood is able to outsmart and outwit and out-everything everyone else. So then, like, what's the point? Yeah, there's no stakes. There's no stakes whatsoever. A reoccurring thing at I this will, point. I will say, I think we're giving Prince John a little short shrift. Uh, because he is very good. He was right. That archery competition fucking hook line and sinker oh yeah robin stumbled right into it robin's not as smart as like robin can like 
improv like a motherfucker and like wiggle out of anything and adapt very well but he gets caught out very very easily mm-hmm. um like at at the end too they're like ah oh, yeah we'll execute fire tug he'll come running and lo and behold and he, he fucking does yeah. he does and they they almost get him they almost burn him down <laughs> They almost burn him alive in that castle. While I had a hard time finding stakes in this film, and Tara found minimal, our conversation with Sam Moody brought up some interesting points. One of the flaws that they put in like Robin Hood and Little John, though, is that they always seem to want like a little bit more than they can take. Like when they're when they're fooling Prince John as like fortune tellers, and then also with the money bags, like they're so close to getting away with so much. And then also, I don't know how the Rhino Guards didn't see Prince John like siphoning the coins from below the treasure chest when they were standing right there, but like just taking a little bit too many of those coins, and then Robin Hood trying to take the last money bags from Prince John while he's sleeping. Like they were so close to getting away. And they just overstep a little bit. I guess that makes it exciting at the same time. You know, like, there's that suspense there where you're like, wait a minute. Because I feel like if it was just, they just did it, you you know, like, they get away. Yeah, but yeah, would you be yeah, as I engaged? Guess, I guess you have to find a way to, like, build the drama into, like, the narrative mm-hmm. systematically. So, like, it's not, they don't get away too easy, mm-hmm. you know. It's also a good way of introducing... Um, flaws into their worldview um, because if 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 Robin Hood is portrayed to be entirely altruistic which is what the motives he fronts are of like steal from the rich give to the poor uh, then it makes it look like we're endorsing radical wealth distribution or communism and we can't be having that so there has to, they're also doing it because they're greedy and they can't help themselves. They always got to take a little bit too much from the rich people. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't think they're saying that, you know, Prince John deserves the wealth. I guess, I guess they have to have flawed characters all around. Right. But they ultimately do come around to, well, the right monarch deserves the wealth. Yeah, the mm-hmm. return of King Richard and him being like, "I am back." Philip is, or not Philip. Philip was his son in real life. Uh, John. John is gone. I have the crown now. Everything's better. Hooray! Which, like, no, that's not how this works. Right. Taxes taxes are now only like ten percent as opposed to fifty percent or a hundred. We can put up with it. Robin Hood got his main Merriam at the end. It's all okay. He's on. He's yeah. on his honeymoon. He doesn't have to worry anymore. Like <laughs> his job's over. again like there's never truly an instance where at least i felt like he could have like i guess like when they had him like literally chained up after the archery tournament you're kind of like oh you know maybe he could actually die but then little john's there because yeah no one can recognize phil harris in a wig like oh my goodness it's yeah i think and i think all these like moments that aggravate me do work toward like the fun comedic tone that I think Mm -hmm. appeals appealed to me when I watched it as a kid and probably is why so many people who watched it when they were younger liked it so much because it's always funny to see like 
you know, the person that you're rooting for make the other person the bad, the, the clear bad guy look dumb. Yeah. It's always, that's, you know, it's satisfying and you're like, hello, that's funny. Um, but I guess just, I'm just, my point now is it just doesn't work as much for me. Yeah. In the present no. day. I'm going to, I'm going to detour us a little bit. Okay. Um, I find it baffling that this movie does not have a cultural insensitivity warning in front of it. Yeah, with the whole um they're they're dressing up as Romani people and playing into Romani stereotypes to rob the carriage. Yeah, cuz when it didn't come up I was like, yeah, I guess that's that's true. And then that whole scene happened and I'm it's, like, uh it's really bad. <laughs> it's, it's really bad it actually. It sucks because like again, Brian Bedford went for it. Yeah. And I appreciate that he went for it, but also he went for it. Like yeah, he, it's like, he, he did that. It's, it's, it's a whole mess of a thing. And it's also illuminating as to what modern day Disney considers to be racism that needs to be actually addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, because stuff with anti-Asian discrimination, anti-black discriminate, uh, racism, uh, all those stereotypes get, like are like Flag. it was wrong then and it was yeah. wrong now hey you know what was wrong then and wrong now treating romani people like this yeah it's really bad it's also extremely interesting because down the pipe we've got fucking hunchback of notre dame coming up which is very textually about anti-romani racism and for them to have that movie in their catalog and then also not go back and be like and not connect the dots there. I think it highlights a certain disingenuousness of these cultural insensitivity warnings. Well, especially because they, at this point, are trying so hard to distance themselves from Song of the South. Like, uh-huh. And it's, like you said, probably only because Song of the South had as much of an outcry uh-huh. that made it bad, bad press, basically. Right. right. But And also, it's the thing of like... As far as I am aware, in modern, in in contemporary American culture, not a ton of people are going are going to speak out against this specific form of racism. Like, when like when's the last like there is a very there is a very specific slur against Romani people that gets used constantly, uh, in like just American day to day language when like. When you get ripped off of something, there's a word that you go to that just specifically references this stereotype. And exactly what we saw happen in the movie. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. There's other stuff that kept me engaged in this. Oh, yeah. Uh, For example, man, (laughs) gender is fucking all over this movie. Okay. Yes. There is so much gender happening in this movie. It's wild because we have the moment when... Okay, when um, Robin and Little John dresses the Romani women, and you know, like I said, Brian uh-huh. Bedford going for it, and then you just have Phil Harris using his regular voice. It's so good, not but even trying. Also, and also the the Rhino guards like checking him out and catcalling him, and, and he's just eating it up. He's just eating it up. He's living for it. But also, uh, Robin looks real good as a woman. Uh, pretty consistently. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. When I was a kid and Robin played the old beggar, I always thought it was an old woman. Uh Uh-huh. 
Absolutely. And then they'd yeah. call him a man, and I'd be like, I'm no. Like, hmm. Hmm. Me too. And, hmm. Huh. 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 Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Huh. Funny. Huh. But yeah, um, there's, there's gender all over this movie. And, like, when they're hanging out, like, after the Maid Marian scene, and they're in, like, the woods, and, like, Lil John, Lil, Lil John's, like, the domestic. Doing- the, the domestic of our dreams. <laughs> uh-huh. Domestic bliss. Love it. Love it to be... And he's wearing that a- that very clearly, like, frilly apron. Right. Which would generally be considered, like, a, um, a uh, femininely gendered thing. Uh-huh. And they're just they're just rolling with it. Yeah. They don't give a fuck. It, it rules. And they do have kind of, like, a homosocial relationship when you think about it. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Like, their whole dynamic and, like, the care that they have for one another... And the way, that, you know, like, their partnership and everything. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Which, like, I don't know. Ro- Robin of Sherwood Forest, bisexual icon? Who can oh, say? 100%. 100%. Well, and I think, like, that came, that stuck out to me, especially because of how they, like, shoved the heteronormativity with Robin and Marion. Like, uh-huh. they very clearly, like, immediately, he's like, I want to marry her. I've known her since we were so young, and I want to marry her. And then, like, during the fight at the archery tournament, he's like, we'll have six kids. And she's like, no, at least a dozen. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it was like a dozen. <laughs> I mean, if you want to carry them, go for it. But <laughs> it's bad. It's, it's like, bad. and it's like shoving it in your face. Like, this is good. Uh-huh. This is what you should want. And it's like, honestly, I just want Robin and little John to, in the like, woods. In, in the woods to just have, have a happy time. Have a happy time. Robin, learn how to cook, please. Seriously. Like, that looked disgusting. And Friar Tuck still Fri- ate it. Friar Tuck's like, holy shit. Fuck. This, this is I disgusting. Just... I'll take another sip. Yeah. I'm I still mean, coughing on this. Taking another I mean, sip. We, who among us? Who among us hasn't? Who among us hasn't done that? That's fair. I'm looking at my notes, and I did find another gender thing, so oh, you can go take for this it. back then. But like, when when they're getting into the also, you've got the thing like when they're getting into the brawl at the end, uh, not the end after the archery, and Lady Clock <sighs> screaming, "There is no place for this is no place for a lady," and proceeds to suplex a rhino. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, all right, cool, amazing, because like. She is the lady in waiting. She is like one of the parag- like she is like by definition a paragon of like w- like w- woman servitude, mm-hmm. and proceeds to suplex rhinoceros pa- like royal guards, which are which one can point to as like a paragon of masculinity, and it's just like completely blurring the line between the two of like yeah, just good, just I, I just think it rules. It's great. It's. It works so well because yeah. it, you're not laughing at her when she's doing it. Oh no! You see her she doing rules. it, and you're yeah. like, "Oh my gosh!" Like she is amazing. You uh-huh. know, it's not. It's there for a gag, but not because you're not laughing because you're like, "Oh, the small chicken." Wow, lol. You're laughing because uh-huh. you're like, "Lol, those rhinos." <laughs> Get right. Didn't see it. Didn't see what was coming. No, not at all. I did think it was funny, kind of still on the gender thing, because you know how last week. The little baby kitten boys were like, um, never trust a female or something. And then Prince John's exact line was, female bandits? Who could believe it? Poppycock. And I'm like, why are we still calling these people females? Women females. 
Females. Females. The only thing worse, like it, it, they are, it already feels like misogynistic, like pickup artist nonsense. Mm-hmm. The only thing worse would be if they called them femoids. <laughs> Uh, you know, maybe if there was, like, a weird sci-fi... Yeah. ...like, movie that they did, uh, I could God. see that, but no, I just... God, now I'm worried that's gonna show up in Meet the Robinsons. Fuck. Oh, no. It, I, I, I don't think it will. That's a... More, <laughs> that's a... We'll see. Sexism is ever-present. Oh, always. I have never heard the word crime nightly so many times... <laughs> Never before I, yeah. this movie. And then in this movie, like, six times in one scene. <laughs> I don't know what the deal with the language in this movie is. It's bizarre. And you can, like, as you say, you can definitely see the rem- remnants of them wanting to put this in the South. Like, yes. all all the, vul- the vulture guards at the end sound like they're from, like, North Carolina. <laughs> it reminded me a lot of kind of how Napoleon and Lafayette operated in uh-huh. Aristocats, but more incompetent. Right. Yes. And yeah, because Lafay- like... Napoleon and Lafayette get stuff done. Come on, let's 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 not be too let's not be too hasty here. Of course, Trigger and Nutsy though are are the war- just complete shit. So yes. Sheriff of Nottingham, because Robin Hood's doing a terrible Nutsy impression and does not and is like half a foot taller, and everyone's just like, yeah, it's fine. It's his worst one, and he By still far. falls for it. That's what that's what gets me. It's like, and Trigger knows what's going on, but then like Prince John does with his. The sheriff of Nottingham is just like, let me sleep. You're being like, you're just being a little jumpy. Like, it's fine. Which, like, I guess with Trigger, you have more of a reason to not trust him. Because, again, he, like, hits that crossbow off, like, one too many times for comfort. But still, like, yeah, yeah. No, incompetent. Uh, but, but, yeah. I gotta know when the safety's on, my guy. You gotta know. Oh my god. Yeah, and that like and that's the thing like with the whole safety talk and then having them be so stereotypically from the south. I just it's, like in a 2022 mind. It's cringe it's at the cr- very least. I Loki, okay, when I was a kid watching this, I thought that at the end of the movie when Trigger like accidentally hits the crossbow again, I thought that was intentional and he was it was like the last ditch effort to try to kill Robin. Nope. And I realized it now. Just doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> doesn't know what he's doing. But that's, like, what... And then, like, even watching it now, I was, like, is this just, like... I feel like this is just, like, one last gag before the movie ends, and it just doesn't work. No, no of course it doesn't. <sighs> Someone who was surprisingly smooth was Alan Adale the rooster. Yeah. I was, like, when he was, like, at the beginning introducing himself, and he's, like, leaning against the letter, and he uh-huh. has his little guitar and just looks up between his lashes, he's, like... I'm Alan Dale. I was like, talk more. <laughs> talk more. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Talk more, please. Yep. It was very I, good. I, very obvious joke directly in front of us, and I'm trying so hard. Yeah, no, Alan Adele rules. Uh, he's suave as shit. It's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Um... I think it's very funny that um, we don't see any humans in the movie, but in the storybook at the beginning, there are humans. Yes. And he basically says, we in the animal kingdom have our own version. And I'm like, oh, no wonder furries like this movie. This movie is just a fanfic Robin Hood AU. <laughs> I mean, you're right. I'm dead right. It's well- just like fucking this shit. If it didn't exist in the 70s, 
would have just shown up would have shown up on AO3 at some point. I totally see it. Yeah. Ken, Ken Anderson's just a furry fanfic writer. Yeah. That's all he is. <laughs> Don't hate me, Ken. I'm sorry. But you got to admit the argument is there. The argument is perfectly valid. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the rooster so smooth. Um, totally am on the band of Robin Hood is the most, the best and most heroic character, male character. We've had up to this point. Oh my God. Like the only one who mildly gives him a run for his money. And that's just because he like, just because he does the things actually is, uh, Prince Philip from Sleeping Beauty. Mm -hmm. Like, but that's again, only because they like, he puts in the bare minimum effort. (laughs) Bare minimum. (laughs) Whereas Robin, oh my god, every time he opened his mouth, I was like, I love your voice. Yeah. <laughs> Sir. Sir. Hello. Oh, he's so handsome. And just like, I loved, apart from the horribly racist one. All of his outfits are pretty okay. They're pretty okay. And he is such a master of disguise. And I like, when he goes for, like, a disguise he goes for it and i love any uh cis appearing male who just actually gives a shit <laughs> and puts 100 percent of effort into something because wow for the most part justin p spoke fondly of the movie at the beginning he mentioned it wasn't a perfect robin hood adaptation and when pressed on that statement he tied it back to the way robin hood the character was portrayed people have kind of like the way that Robin Hood just as a character is portrayed is kind of like overdone at this point. Mm. But um, I think that's just why I'm like, wow, I've heard this story a lot. And so like we watching it as an adult, it's like, okay, this is, I guess it's not as it wouldn't be tired then, but it is very tired now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's part of it. What did you think? Because I think for a while, like artistically, we've been seeing it kind of gets stripped down. I think when you think of like Sleeping Beauty to now with each each movie, it's become more and more bare bones. Yeah. I think like you really, it really kind of slaps you in the face in the beginning because of the fact that we open with this storybook opening, which we've done with so many movies so far when they're based off of some famous tale, but just looking at the artwork on the pages themselves, it's nothing like what we saw with sleeping beauty or any of the storybooks beforehand. Like it is literally like a white page with a very basic drawing. And like, even the text is not as intricate as it was. Um, I'll I'll just go one further. I think this movie kind of looks like shit. It doesn't look... Yeah, it's like... Uh, Lackluster. You're really gonna do fire? You're really gonna do fire like this? After Sleeping Beauty exists? (laughs) I'm sorry. You're inviting a bad comparison here. Yeah. Like, how... Why even try? I, I just... It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't. And it's like... I know that with Xerox, everything is a little harsher and a little sketchier, but there's a way you can do that and make it look good. Like, 
everything about this is very stripped down. There's really, like, I, I understand that this is feudal England, medieval England, as we were talking about. But, like, honestly, they probably could very easily have been, like, make a few tweaks here, a few tweaks there, take out the castle, put in something else, and then I you mean, would have had the south, like, the deep right. south. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But also, like, you, you're like, I understand this is feudal England. It's not that hard to make medieval shit look good. Again, mm-hmm. fucking not even, you don't even have to go the, you don't have to swing as hard, but, like, Sleeping Beauty exists. Right. I'm sorry to keep pulling on Sleeping Beauty, but it is, like, the best depiction of fucking feudal stuff that they've done so far. Right. It is going to be the high watermark for me in terms of, like, a medieval fa- medieval fantasy coming out of Disney. And everything will be judged by that milestone. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, okay, now how about this? Because I think comparing it to Sleeping Beauty is a little bit unfair, just based on everything. What if we compared it then instead to Sword in the Stone, which is a Xerox film that's fairly stripped down, but also Uh, takes place in medieval England? Yeah. I feel like that's a more fair comparison. I feel like that's a more fair comparison. It still looks like Garbo compared to Sword in the Stone. (laughs) You think so? Sword in the Stone is like, like those backgrounds are kind of Ivid Earl-esque. And like the it's the animation on top that is more Xeroxy. Whereas all all of the background stuff here is just nondescript um it's very drab um which i get that they're going for because like king richard's away so the the land needs to reflect the ruler that is in power so like everything looks drab and dull and gray it's not very happy except for like the couple of instances where everyone's partying um with robin hood and then that's all animation reuse Mm -hmm. uh and it's at night so like everything's dark anyways uh, it's it's a it's a it's like a bluish night rather than just being gray, mm-hmm. but it's still not great to look at. Yeah. Um, I'm also like I'm also not one to ding on animation reuse. I don't really care. Animation's expensive. If you can reuse stuff, you can go for it. Sure. Despite the fact that we've talked in the history sections of hey, reusing the animation's actually m- not cheaper. Right. Here. It not um, at all. <laughs> It's not, it, not at all, and it probably also, like, makes the work harder. Oh, no, um, animators said, like, yeah. it would have been easier to start from scratch instead of trying to match everything, like, right. beat for beat. Right, animation reuse only really becomes useful in terms of, like, background reuse, like the Hanna-Barbera stuff, where, like, you would, they'd be running down a hall and the hallway would just loop. Mm-hmm. Um, or when you get into 3D and you've already got all the assets made and all the rigging made where you just start dragging assets back in. Right. Uh, and you already got the stuff. You've already got the, the animation loops uh, programmed in. Like, that's where animation reuse and asset reuse really becomes beneficial. But here, guys, <laughs> at least, like, at least, like, try. <laughs> An ounce of effort. Just the tiniest amount of effort would have been appreciated. Yeah. Yeah, because, like... And, 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 like, again, that is not a dig on the animators. That's a dig on the higher-ups. Because, like... Right. They didn't have they, yeah, the time or money or resources yeah. or anything. Exactly. Yeah. They did what they could with what they were given, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, I'd say... I have no major thoughts or feelings about how it looked. And I think that's just because it was so bland. Yeah. Like, there's really nothing for me to pick on other than it was fairly open looking. So that just meant there wasn't a lot on screen at one time. Um, 
you know, obviously the way that the elephants and the rhinos marched was reused in every scene they were in. But that's yeah. I'm, I wasn't really upset about that because you, you can know, more... you can only make animals move so many different ways exactly and they're very regimented and part of like this fanfare so like i get that like you know there's standards and i i would and honestly it it was a little enjoyable i'd say just because you knew what to expect yeah but um yeah nothing really remarkable or anything that i'd want to like comment on (laughs) because i really just i didn't have any thoughts yeah no absolutely it's it's just the I, I was, I'm with you. I was very, I was indifferent to it because of how bland it was. And then the fire happened. I'm like, this looks like shit. Oh my God. We've already heard from some guests who disagree with me and Tara. There were even guests who picked up on the lesser quality, even noted the animation reuse. But that didn't hinder their enjoyment of the film. Here's Daniel. Now, hmm. I did some research on my own. Oh. Just recently. Okay. About this, because I knew I was going to be talking about these two movies. And so I found out they were made roughly at the same time, probably just a couple of years apart in production schedule. And there are a lot of things, animation-wise, that carry over from The Jungle Book to Robin Hood. Mm. For instance, Baloo's entire character design is Little John. They just color him differently. He even has the same voice actor. Yep. Which I've got to say, being a voice actor, like, you, how good does it have to feel to be typecast as a fun-having bear for Disney movies? Even when I was young, I knew that during the dance scene, they were dancing, and they looked the same. It was the same dance that they do in the Aristocats. I had not even seen the Aristocats. I just saw, like... A clip on the Disney Channel and was like, oh, that's the dance. And then we turned to Robin Hood and it's like, oh, that's the same dance. Huh. Okay. And then watching, like I watched the Jungle Book last night. I watched Robin Hood today to kind of familiarize myself with it again. And watching them that closely together, it's like, okay, the, the, blue, the Blue Louie dance from the Jungle Book is the same as the Little John and Chicken Lady dance in Robin Hood. Like, to a scary point. And so, like, I think, I've, I don't know the eras of Disney, but I've heard you call this the Xerox era. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's likely why, is the animations just came through. I read somewhere today that... Walt Disney died shortly before all of this. And so the studio was kind of trying to find its way without him for the first time and kind of release the string of movies during that period. So maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. This also came up in our conversation with Sam Moody. I will say I I felt like, even though I haven't seen a lot of the Disney films recently, I felt like every single character I saw was recycled from something like the, the mice with the little black eyes. I swear I've seen them before. I don't know if they're from Cinderella or from the rescuers or something. Sir Hiss is basically Ka from the jungle book. Um, little John is basically Baloo. He's voiced by the same actor. In fact, I felt like the, uh, rhino guards and the elephant guards and the hippo guards all looked familiar. 
Um, I was wondering if in like the tournament, there's like the main Gator guard that announces it, and his like gravelly voice kind of sounded like the main like um, Indian in. Um, yeah, the chief. Let me. Yeah. Um, let's see, Peter Pan. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It is. It is him. Oh, awesome! Wow. Okay. There you go. He was also in the Rescuers. He was in the um. Okay, so remember in Sleeping Beauty when you said the one. Yeah. Uh, go- that was okay. him. That was him. Okay, so there's that. Um. Yeah, Peter Pan. Yeah, so he was great mouse detective. Black. <gasps> he's in the Black Cauldron. Okay, so he's in a few of these. He was like a like an underground regular. It looks like. But yes, your observation is correct, Sam. Yeah, he's he's got a very distinct like gravelly voice, I think. Yeah, the accents always confused me. I remember as a kid being like, why does he sound for like he's from England and why does he sound American and how are they friends and how'd they both I get mean- here? I mean, in in the long history of Robin Hood adaptations, people being unable to do accents is uh, is almost tradition at this point. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Costner in uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves cannot do a British accent to the point that it is directly remarked upon in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Oh, I remember the, that joke in the movie. Yeah, yeah. He, looking dead in the camera and going, unlike other Robin Hoods, I can speak with a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair that is fair it just i thought it was it was like this is as a kid i was trying yeah. to make sense of it because that's how uh, my brain would work yeah no that's entirely fair um, but also and like just in terms of like voice actors so that you get you get some actors who are just very much like can do anything you throw at them and then there's other actors who are just like i'm going to do one voice and one voice alone and you're going to like it and you're going to deal with it Okay, speaking of that, I'd want to talk a bit about Phil Harris. Yeah. Because I just feel like he's gotten worse and worse with each movie, personally. Interesting take. Yeah. Elaborate more. I would say this is largely because he has one voice and uses it for the three characters. And so when Mm -hmm. you start with watching him in Jungle Book it's easy to associate that voice with that sort of character. So then when he tries to do different characters, like I'd say O'Malley is the most, he deviates the most. Cause I think Blue yeah. and Little John have enough. I know they're different in that Blue's a lot more carefree. And then Little John's like a lot more like Robin should be really be doing this. This could be dangerous, you know? Right, the, worried, the, the, the worried housewife that he is. Right, but it, that comes down to the writing more than performance. The performances are basically the same. Yes, and I think that's and and I think I just because we've had three in a row of the same, like I, it's not that he's a bad voice actor. I just was kind of like, yeah, do something so, else. <laughs> it's interesting to think about voice actors who only have the one voice because. On one hand, you've got Phil Harris, who literally only has the one voice and doesn't do any intonation changes to, to differentiate himself. Mm-hmm. Like you said, he swings a little bit on O'Malley, but not enough for it to really matter. Yeah. And then you've got someone like Sterling Holloway. Oh, who's my not, God. Who's not in this, but Sterling Holloway has one voice. 
But he does it differently with each character. Exactly. That's the difference. Exactly. He does. He varies the the pace, the intonation, where he's putting the stress on stuff, um, the just the general cadence of his voice. Um, he he's like re like. I don't know how to phrase it. He's like re-equalizing his voice differently for each one. He's not like he's not like doing a voice. No. But he's doing enough very he does enough variation between like the Cheshire Cat to Winnie the Pooh to Roquefort, the mouse in, to Roquefort. Just, the Stork and Dumbo. Uh huh. A to B to C to D. Mm-hmm. Like they're all distinct enough that yes, that's the same voice, but he's adding enough spin to it that it fits the roles better. Yes. Like, he's a lot more mousy for Roquefort than he is, like, anything else. And, like, he just lets himself become completely unhinged for the Cheshire Cat. Oh, my gosh. You know? But then you have that playing Winnie the Pooh, who is, like, the Uh exemplar of wholesomeness. Exactly. And childhood warmth. Right. And you're, like, the range. And Phil Harris just doesn't have the range. No. To really make any distinguishing elements between Baloo and Little John. Yes. The only distinct the only real distinction between the two is their fur color, honestly. Yeah, I think the design is Well, yeah, and Baloo it's, it's is a, longer a, and I think Little John's a little more c- circular. Okay, but like, those are those are minor changes. Yeah. Like again, you can only you can only draw that type of bear so many ways, yes. you know. At least with this style of animation that Disney is working in right now. Right. Um, that being said, the way Phil Harris says Fortune's Forecast's Lucky Charms lives in my head right free. forever. Because he says it a few times and it's the same way every time. And I wouldn't be su- I wouldn't be surprised if it was one recording of it and, and they, they just, just like, it. duped it. And it. But it works. It rules. It it's does. A great, it's a great take. Well, and I think it works also so well because you have that right after the first line you hear Robin say as the fortune teller in his falsetto. Mm-hmm. And it's just that stark contrast plus it's the way so he funny. delivers it. It's so it's It's so funny because you're you're <laughs> Robin doing a voice makes you expect that Phil Harris that 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 little John <laughs> is going to do a voice as well. And then it's just his it's voice. It's just Phil Harris. <laughs> And I'm just, it, it takes you out of it immediately. Yep. Just whoop, sucked right, right out of the movie. Um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's fucking great. It's hilarious. It is, it's a great, it's great. <clears throat> um, but also it's very emblematic of like one of, like one of the problems with this. Yes. Yeah. And again, like, like I mentioned, they were just trying to do things that they thought would work and didn't really want to take risks. And Phil Harris at this point wasn't really a risk. They they knew what they were getting and they knew it worked before. So why change that? Right. I, so I totally get that. And like, like you said, there are moments where, like that one scene where you're like, this is entertaining. And then, but then there's moments where you're like, I wish it was a little something else. But give me, give me something. Give me anything. I want and just. Try to speak it. No, don't try to speak in a French accent because that's not going to go over well. Oh like, you know God. what I his, mean. His horrible fucking French in the in the archery tournament scene is so goddamn funny. It's so funny. He tried so hard. 
And then he just breaks it and is like, hey, PJ, how are we doing? I'm just like, oh, my fucking God. I love then he goes, then his later is like, Buster, long one. <laughs> this is also just a little moment I thought was, again, with gender. But also. <laughs> yeah, much, much gender. I love how little John, as he steals more, he gets curvier. And then because of that becomes less of a threat to the rhinos. Yeah. I was how did, like, how did they not feel? How did they not feel him taking all the money out of that carrot, that container? That's what I was wondering. They'd be like, oh, this is lighter. At a, at a wow. certain, we need, yeah, that is one of the most obvious ones in this movie. And probably one of the only times we will stoop to quote unquote cinema sins levels of film crit. <laughs> But uh, that is one of the ones where I'm like, hang on a minute. <laughs> how does that work? And also, how did you, like, how'd you Little not John's see him? a big guy. How'd you not see him? And there's not a lot of room down there. No, there's not. Like, that is one of the most just glaringly obvious things. It's well, there's, like... there's that. And then, like, they have that whole pulley system in the castle with the money bags. And, like, how do the guards just spend all night not seeing that? You assume that they're patrolling. This movie operates on video game logic. <laughs> If it's not directly in the vision cone, they don't see it. Oh my god! I just was like, "Excuse me." Um, do do do. Yeah, and then Skippy gets a sword all of a sudden. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, again, like it, it just appears. Um, I need Disney to stop with the fake deaths. Just, I need it to stop. I need it to stop. This one didn't bug me as much. It wouldn't bug me so much if we didn't have a couple of people in interviews say that this is one of the ones that stuck with them. Mm. And, like, the, the movie actually does try and play it like, ah, he's fucking dead. No, he's not. It's a fucking Disney movie. We know how this works now. And this is where, like, on one hand, the criticism that Disney films are emotionally manipulative is stupid because art is meant to create emotion in the viewer. Uh, the entire point of art is to let yourself feel emotions and uh, welcome in that quote unquote manipulation. On the other hand, Dis- the Disney sad people, the Disney sad vibes formula is starting to take shape and I'm already mad at it. See, I think again, like I noticed that I totally get where you're coming from. I think if the tone of the movie was different, I would have felt differently. Like I'm more upset that the dog didn't die in Lady and the Tramp, personally, yeah. than oh, I am I'm, that I'm Robin mad about died. That. I'm mad about that, too. Because I'm mad I, about that, too. Because yeah. I feel like that would have even matched the tone of the movie more. Whereas this, again, because there's no stakes, of course Robin's going to survive. Like, I mean, would it be insane if they killed him off? Yes. Right, because that would have, like, it would have also acted as, like, a refutation of his worldview. If they had killed him, which, like, they, uh, I, which, on one hand, very surprised that the Walt Disney Company didn't refute the worldview of Robin Hood. Right. Um, which, as we talked about, they were very worried about uh, showing at any point. But, like, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it, it, it bugs me that they would even, uh, even attempt it. Because, like. I don't know. Like arrows hit the water and they just kind of stop. They're not they're not built for uh hydrodynamics. They're just going to stop. Like they lose all their momentum. Of course he wasn't dead. Right. They didn't hit him in the air. It's fine. Right. So yeah. 
Yeah, and also just like the the arrow through the hat. I'm like, they used that motif at the be- they used that image at the beginning of the movie, and he was like, oh, they got through the hat. They didn't quite get me. Right. Which like that pops up again. I'm like, oh, so they didn't get him. Like that's what that means. Yeah. You've established that's what that means. Why would you do that and then have everyone else be like, oh, he's dead. They got his hat. Like, come on. There is no logic in this movie. None. None whatsoever. There is none. There's no no logic whatsoever. <laughs> Because they they expect us to be emotionally invested in the Robin Hood made Marion thing, but and no. Marion's Marion Marion herself is barely on camera, let alone with Robin Hood. And the sole purpose for her character in the movie is to get is to be with Robin Hood. Yeah, she has like really no discernible personality other than she's nice to kids, which makes her a yeah. great mother. Yeah. So those dozen kids that she wants to has makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you also forget she's like pro tier at badminton. Oh, I forgot about that. But that makes sense because she's... She's got nothing else to do. Yeah, like, she's rich and a single Uh woman. And stuck probably in that castle. So what else is she going to do? But Mm -hmm. honestly, with a coach like Lady Cluck, of course she's top top tier. Of course. Lady Cluck rules. Lady Cluck. Lady Cluck is amazing. Yeah, we stand a Scottish bird. The last thing I have to say, it's this is half a joke because I know the answer. I understand how naming conventions work. But uh, who names a church mouse Sexton? Wait, that's his name? That's his name. What? Friar, Friar Tuck says it once, and I lost my mind. Because I'm like, you named the mouse Sexton. S-E-X-T-O-N. I had the subtitles on. <laughs> but you named the mouse Sexton. I know the reason why, because, like, in in old religious naming conventions, like, the more kids you, like, it, it, like, there's, like, the magical thinking of, like, you have to name the kids based on, like, the number. So, like, you, na- you would name your first kid Primus, etc., 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 which is where you get the name Septimus, because that's the seventh son. So, okay. Sexton would be the sixth. Okay. So, I understand. And it's it's mice. They have a lot of kids. So I understand how you get that name, but also you named the church mouse Sexton. <laughs> See, at that point, I totally had zoned out and was like, "Yeah, that's entirely fair." <laughs> barely paying attention. That's entirely but yeah, fair. Disney. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Who who approved this? <laughs> That's all from us this week. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review. Five stars only, of course. You can find me at play underscore champion on Twitter. And you can find me at Alex underscore Isaac on Twitter. You can also follow the show at Dream Deeper Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can write into the show at dreamalittledeeperpod at gmail.com. Special thanks to all our guests for taking the time to talk to us. You can follow Daniel at SantoyVO on Twitter and visit his voice acting website at DanielSantoyVO.com. You can follow Justin P at J underscore Peary 36. You can find Dr. Justin Rollins at J underscore O underscore Rollins on Twitter. You can follow Diana's Journey on Instagram at Diane E-Y-H-U and support their theater company, Blackjack Rewrite Company on Facebook and Instagram. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily underscore Michelle. You can follow Kaylee on Instagram at Kaylee underscore Spiel. You can find Sam Van Haren on Twitter at Sam Shot First. And you can listen to his podcasts, Keanu Believe It, Going Helms Deep, and TFS Assemble on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. 
Thank you for listening this week. Join us next time for the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers.